Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture. We are so excited to have Dr. Daphne Taylor. She is originally from Dallas, Texas. She recently returned to her home state to begin her career as a hematologist and oncologist at Christus St. Michael W. Temple Weber Cancer Center in Texarkana, Texas. She received her bachelor's degrees from Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans, LA, graduating magna cum laude. She earned her medical degree from University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, and completed her internal medicine residency at the Medical University of South Carolina. After residency, she completed her subspecialty training at Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. In her spare time, Dr. Taylor enjoys listening to music, baking, which I love to do, and antiquing. So I'll have to ask her if there's any really cool spots in Texas to go antiquing. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for joining us so much. We really always appreciate our guests for just volunteering their time. We know especially physicians and people in medicine are super busy. So just thank you so much for coming on to educate the listeners. Thank you so much for you and Ebony having me here. Ebony is not going to be here today. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a great segue. Ebony won't be on this episode, but she'll maybe be joining us for our second episode if Dr. Taylor agrees to come back with us. She had an emergency with one of her clients. That's part of the life. And so she won't be with us today. So it'll just be me and Dr. Taylor. I wanted to start by asking you, Dr. Taylor, what inspired you to become a physician out of all the things that you could have been. I was doing a little research about you and I know that your father was a dentist and you've always been around medicine, but why specifically hematology? That's my big question. So it kind of happened in stages. When I was younger, I would go to work with my dad and he would have be in his lab and I would wear his white coat and I'd be like, okay, I kind of like this. Never wanted to be a dentist. Yeah, that, was, no. that never entered my mind. <laughs> Did you have a fear of getting your teeth or because your dad was a dentist, you were like so used to it and you never had an issue? Because I have a severe phobia of going to the dentist. I'm okay with going to the dentist. It was just, it didn't interest me as much. And then mm-hmm. I looked at some of his textbooks and I was like, I don't even want to try to learn this. I'm going to close this and put it down <laughs> and yeah. we'll do something else. Yeah, um, yeah. So when I was younger, that's kind of how it started. When I was around 11 years old, my cousin Raina, who was exactly nine months older than me, she got mm. very sick. Okay. Um, and she lived in Texarkana, coincidentally. Wow. So she eventually came to stay with us so she could go to the hospitals in Dallas. Okay. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I knew enough for the Discovery Channel that, okay, her eyes are getting yellow. She's having liver problems. So mm-hmm. I asked my mom, hey, mom. Can I give her part of my liver? Because I know I don't need it all. Not knowing about like matching and donors and all that jazz. Like, no, that's not quite how it works. And she eventually passed away and we don't really know what happened. And I don't like not knowing what happened. So that really put me on the path to want to be a physician, to be able to know the what and the why, and to be able to advocate for my family and friends and for patients of color. 
Right, right. I'm so sorry that you lost your cousin. It's It seems like almost every physician that I speak to has some type of story where either they were sick or a loved one was sick. And I think like the powerlessness or the feeling of like not having control in that situation kind of catapults us into our career. I had an experience when I was younger where I got very, very sick from mono and I was at CHOP for two and a half weeks. And I remember being so like, you know, you watch Grey's Anatomy or you watch like these shows and they like glamorize medicine. But when you're a patient or you're a loved one seeing a patient go through this, the reality really sets in on how lonely it can be. Like I was only a kid and I was in the hospital for like two weeks. You know, that's a long time for a kid to be in the hospital. And I remember having a really awesome nurse and that's kind of what catapulted me into medicine, like wanting to be that advocate for the patient and wanting to like make them feel a little less lonely during their journey. So awesome start to being around your dad, I'm sure. What did your mom do, if you don't mind me asking? My mom's a pharmacist, so definitely Uh, around people in the healthcare professions all my life. So I know one of your questions was, how did I end up in hematology? That is a funny story. Okay. (laughs) So when I went to med school, I kind of knew I always liked outpatient medicine and I liked primary care and I liked women's health. I loved a baby's story. So I just knew I was probably going to either be a primary care physician or an OBGYN. I got to OB and I realized it was too much surgery. I said, no, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, people don't realize how long you have and the hours. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was like, no, thank you. Because babies are born all times of day. Yes. (laughs) And then with internal medicine, I really, really liked it. I really liked it. And in Galveston, Galveston's a relatively small island and each class has 230 medical students. So when you go to electives on your medicine rotation, you can go to different parts of Texas. So I said, please send me home. I don't care (laughs) what specialty. Send me home so I can eat well. Yes, exactly. So that's how that started. (laughs) And they almost didn't have a spot for me, but Dr. Reddy at Texas Oncology decided to take me on. And I was just happy to be home. But once I got there, I had that, what I call the say yes to the dress moment. Ah, okay. Where I was like, oh, this is it. I loved that I got to really know my patients. And that's an aspect of internal medicine that I love, that I really got to know, like, how's your mom? How's your dad? How's your cousin? How's your grandma? Really building that relationship with your patient. Mm. And then this is the only subspecialty where you don't necessarily want your patient to lose weight. So I can encourage you to eat things. Um, (laughs) So that made me very happy. And I just really enjoyed getting up and going to work every day and to learn with Dr. Reddy. And that's kind of when it was like, okay, we're doing hemonc. Yeah, yeah. I think it takes such a special person to do hematology and oncology. And some people are like, I could never do that. It's so sad. But what are the parts about it that, like you loved the portion of internal medicine, getting to know people. And I'm sure that's even more intimate now that they have this diagnosis whatever it is. So what keeps you positive? Like what keeps you, despite dealing with the possibility of death all day long, what keeps you positive when you speak to your patients? Just knowing that I'm there for my patients. That's one big thing. There are things that we are able to fix. Nothing to me is more satisfying than a woman with menorrhagia or heavy menstrual bleeding and iron deficiency. And she's able to get that taken care of. I give her some iron. She's like, I feel great. That really makes a difference in people's lives. Right. But just my love for people and my love of serving others keeps me going to work every day. 
Oh, that's so nice. We need more doctors like you, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Taylor. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, how was medical school? And I know you had talked about internal medicine and loving internal medicine, but how challenging was it? How was your residency? And then even, I mean, you've done obviously a fellowship now to be in Hemonk. How did you stay persistent and stay like to the course? And then also... Were there things that happen that kind of life does not go on pause, unfortunately, when you're in the medical profession or training to be? So was there any challenges that you had uh, during that time? Ooh, that's an understatement. And I think that's an understatement for anyone. And it's very eerie to me that you said, stay the course. There was a time in college where I was really doubting, was this what I wanted to do? And I know people, so many people may not believe in dreams and stuff like that, but my cousin came to me in a dream and she had Mm -hmm. come to me in years. It had okay. been years. And she told me to stay the course. Okay. I always hearken back to that. But I also like to tell people that there's more than my name on my degrees and certificates. It took a village to get me here. A village of people I know and people I don't know. People who have prayed for me, hugged me, let me cry. I just can't say how thankful I am. Patients have encouraged me mm-hmm. when I've been feeling down. Med school, everybody's smart. And when you're used to being at the, the top, smartest, <laughs> yes. And now you're with all of the top and you're not the top anymore. Mm. That can cause some issues. Yeah. So just learning to separate who I am from my grades, knowing why I'm doing this and knowing that I am not a grade that anyone gives me. Yeah, yeah. That's so powerful. And and something that I always say to, like, I talk to a lot of pre-med students and pre-PA, pre-NP, they might go on to be pharmacists. They're still deciding and they're in college. And I always say to them, when you get to that net sec, let people take care of you. Because I think a lot of physicians and People in medicine tend to have type A go-getter personalities and we're used to being the anchor for a lot of people in our life and ourselves. We tend to be internally motivated. And then when we get to that next level, like you were saying, and you're starting to learn you have to change your study habits that have always worked for you. You're not getting the outcomes no matter how many hours you spend in the library, no matter how many different study groups you go to. It can be very overwhelming. And I always tell these students and anybody who wants to go into medicine is you have to allow others to take care of you. It's not a time to be like prideful. It's really a time to be like, if your mom wants to come and visit, like let her visit and do your laundry. If you're lucky to have a friend who will drop off something or run and go to the grocery store for you, it's the time to like really surround yourself with your A-team. And I think that's like really a great advice that you're giving Dr. Taylor, because I think that's like something that is so Nobody talks about that. In my mind, you can't have pride. No. At all. (laughs) You're going to need help from somebody for something. You cannot and you will not know everything. Let it go. Yeah, yeah. Let it it go. I have been blessed with food from my mom. She would put it in Ziploc bags, freeze it, lay it flat. I'd bring it back in suitcases. I appreciated that. Yeah. I had my med school mom, Jalen Villarreal. She was always there for me when I needed to talk or needed a hug because my mom physically couldn't be there. Right. But another thing that people who are interested in medicine need to also understand is how to get back up when you get knocked down. 
Yes. Because and you're going to get knocked part. out. And that's the hardest. That was the hardest part for me. <laughs> I was like, how do I, like you were saying, when you're used to doing well all of undergrad and you're used, I mean, you know, organic chemistry or something might throw you for a loop, but you figure it out. And then you go on to, I was in PA school and I remember like getting my exams back and being like, oh, this must be somebody else's exam. <laughs> I don't understand. How did I spend this many hours in lab or whatever? And I'm getting these grades. So I think, how did you stay motivated? How did you motivate yourself to get? I remember getting lectures from my mom, like, you've already put the money in. You have to figure it out. And you have to, don't let anybody take your dream away from you, including yourself. So if your dream is really to be in medicine and change lives, I think keeping the big picture too, because when you're in microbiology and these things are literally so small, (laughs) keeping the big picture alive of like one day, this is going to help you one day in this theory will help you take care of a patient better. You know, clinicals was my favorite part. When I got to my clinicals, I was like, thank God, hallelujah. (laughs) The tests were hard, but I remember being like, it's not so much nitty gritty details that you have to remember and drill into your head. So how did you stay motivated when you got knocked down, Dr. Taylor? My village really stepped in and helped pick me up. When I got knocked down, when you're taking Mike Tyson punches, (laughs) it takes a little bit to get up. Yeah. And I really just appreciate my parents. I'll just call them my training moms, the patients that I've encountered that have told me, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy to see you. And knowing I can't let an elder down. Yeah. Because they've been through worse. Yeah. So what do I have to complain about? Right. Let's talk about what it was like being Black in medical school. What was that experience like? You rotated in Texas, but what was it like for you? How many of your peers do you remember were people of color or Black? So my class is an anomaly. Mm -hmm. So there were 230 of us in our class and 47 of us were of African descent. Okay. That's a high number. A very high number. <laughs> a very so high number. I was able to insulate myself and okay. I had a very good core group of friends where we supported each other, laughed together, cried together, studied together. Mm-hmm. So it was trauma bonding. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wish Ebony was here. She'd be like, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it was trauma bonding. So we're still very close to this day. We have a, yep. a large group chat and everything. We ask each other questions when who can do the what. So I think in medical school, I also felt very supported. Very supported. By the staff? By the staff? By your administration? Certain people in the administration were very supportive and they pushed us to be our best. Mm -hmm. And they wanted the best for us. And I'm used to that tough love because that's where I what I got at Xavier. Mm -hmm. J.W. Carmichael, Dr. J.W. Carmichael and QV pushed us to be our best. It was tough love. Mm-hmm. But they did it all out of love. Dr. And Thomas all- at UTMB pushed us out of love. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think also they understand like it's such a responsibility, you know, like they're also protecting the public by being so tough on us. And that's something I really had to get into my head as I got older. It's like they're also trying for me, there's only 40 of us in my class for PA school. And I was one of two African-American 
I'm best friends <laughs> till this day. <laughs> you know, like we we lived, breathed the library, lived, breathed, like anything. We would go to get coffee, come back all day, every day. So I, I'm so glad that you're still able to maintain those bonds because it is trauma bonding and you're bonded for life, right? I'm sure you guys talk about those experiences. Like this was hard, but this was not as hard as when we had this exam or when we did this or et cetera, et cetera. So what was it like when you finally reached the end of your journey? Did you cry? Because I know I cried when I graduated. What was the most special graduation? Was it when you, there's no graduation for fellowship, is there? We did have like a little graduation ceremony. I think that one was just probably the most emotional for me because this is 14 years, 14 years of what I've gone through to get to this point, a day that Sometimes I wasn't sure I was going to see and I made it and that I has an asterisk, like I said before, is with a bunch of the people village behind the you. village behind me. Right. And that just really made me reflect about all I had gone through, the sacrifices that I made and others made for me to get to this point. How did you select your first job? How did you know it was like the right fit? How did you know? Because I think that's something that they talk about in in school when we're graduating. But then it's also like when you're doing it, it seems like so surreal because now you have this degree and you can practice. So how did you find the right fit for yourself? What was it about the place that you're working at now or worked during your first position that you loved? So I'm probably one of the few rare birds that went straight through from high school, college, medical school residency fellowship. So that was my first time applying for a real people job. Okay. (laughs) Where a match was not involved. So I was definitely out of my depth Mm -hmm. about how do I do this? How do I locate? How do I tell the real from the fake? Because on interviews, everybody's lying. Everybody's nice. Everybody's so nice. The perfect job on paper. Everybody's lying. You know, it's a first date. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You're getting married based on a speed date. So I really just spoke with my mentors quite a bit on things to look out for, what to look for. I did research on what I should be paid in the area that I planned on working. I had geographical limitations. I don't do cold. (laughs) So I don't don't know, Dr. Taylor, I'm near Canada. (laughs) Mm -mm. No, ma'am. So I was looking at Texas and Georgia, North and South Carolina. Okay. Then I started Googling for jobs and job openings. There are some websites that you can use that have some job postings. And then just being persistent about following up with those, especially the ones that you're interested in and locations that you're interested in. And going on those interviews with COVID, it made things a little bit more interesting, which I kind of liked because you would have like, I call it the coffee date. Mm -hmm. via Zoom or Teams or whatever. So you can kind of get a feel about whether or not you even want to physically go and see that place. Mm -hmm. So quite a few of my interviews were done online and I did three in-person interviews. So I went to Atlanta, Houston, and Texarkana. I liked Atlanta. I liked what they were trying to do in that hospital They were really trying to serve the indigent population. And I've always said, I want to serve the underserved. Right. And they were building a new cancer program. And I was nervous, but excited because it's not built yet, but then I can make it what I want. Exactly. Yeah. And I went to Houston and Houston has MD Anderson. So that's the hunger games of trying to get patients 
And then Texarkana, Dr. Lauren Robinson is the CMO. She did my first interview. And after I spoke with her, she's African-American. Okay. That's when I knew. I was like, Texarkana might be the dark horse. Yes. Because something, especially my applicants of color, you need to find a person of color and basically ask them, is it safe to be here? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always ask that question. Medical school, residency, fellowship. Is it safe? And she told me yes. So then it came down to Atlanta or Texarkana. And I like Texarkana too, serving the underserved. My spirit felt equally about both. And I was like, okay, Lord, you got to show me which one of these two I need to go with. And please make it obvious, construction, paper, and crayons. You know I'm slow. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) It came down to the offer. And Texarkana was more hungry. And they were willing to pay my worth. Yeah, and that's important. That's 14 years of school. (laughs) And that's all that education that you're paying for, you know? And I'm sure you're a phenomenal physician and you have a great personality. So you don't always get all that wrapped up into one person, you know? (laughs) So you got the offer that God showed you with numbers where you should be, where you should be, commas. Yes, he, he showed numbers because I also have six years worth of student loan interest. So- Yeah, yeah. So that for me was the dividing line. But when I got here and seeing the patients that I serve and at Christus, it's a Catholic hospital. So their mission is to extend the hand of Christ. So we don't turn anyone away. Hmm. It doesn't matter. You could be Oprah. You could be Quasimodo. Doesn't matter. You walk in, you're getting treated and you're getting treated the same way. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. And those Mm -hmm. are the people that I wanted to see. Because yeah. unfortunately, a lot of those people are going to look like me. Yes, yes. For reasons that we'll get into. <laughs> the reasons we've gotten into on the show. I wanted to ask you, because you said something super interesting just now when you said, is it nice to not have insurance tie your hands? Like when you're at a, an, a place where they will treat you the same no matter what, and you don't have to really, because this happens a lot in medicine. I feel like people don't understand this. Insurance companies really decide what treatments we can give a lot of the times. And if we really want something, we just have to advocate, advocate, go through the insurance, jump through hoops. But a lot of the times, if it's a no, sometimes it's a no. And so you working for a Catholic hospital, do you love the fact that all of your patients, you guys find a way to figure out how to treat them the same way? Unfortunately, insurance is very much so still involved. Um, (laughs) Still involved. So there are a lot of insurance issues that do sometimes tie my hands Mm-hmm. And there are times that I have to go to bat and sometimes I can win. And sometimes they're like, we don't care. I show them journal articles. We don't care. So there's still a, a tying of the hands. I'll call it being handicapped yeah. by insurance companies sometimes, but we're trying to figure out ways around it. And something that I want to do as we try to grow this cancer center in Texarkana, it's a small town. But my goal is to be able to provide big city care at home so we don't have mm-hmm. to send people out to Little Rock or Dallas or Shreveport for more specialized things, at least getting the basics here. Yeah, which means a lot to the patients because when you have to go through a diagnosis such as cancer, it's already overwhelming. And then you have to be uprooted and you have to think also about the financial implications of going somewhere else. I practice in a very small town. So it's horrible when you feel like you can't 
offer the treatment this patient really does need. And that could be life-saving because of the location that they're in. So they're very blessed to have you, Dr. Taylor. I wanted to ask, now that we're talking about your patients, do you have a patient who's had a really big impact on you? I know you had talked about previously patients encouraging you along the way, which I think if you're listening out here and you are a patient and you do have a great physician or provider, you should tell them because <laughs> it really does matter to us. Like I go home talking to that about my husband when I have someone say like, you're phenomenal. My kids love you. Da, 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 da. So, but do you have a patient story that really impacted your journey or now that you're a patient you're seeing? It's a little different from impact. It's more of a funny story. Okay. But a little sad at the same time. So my first six months in fellowship, we're in a continuity clinic and the co- clinic I was in happened to be my Loma. And I'm fresh out, you know, fresh out of residency, very eager. And I'll just call her Miss Short. And I meet Miss Short and she has my Loma. She's an older African-American woman. And she has this orange sized mass, like right under her arm, kind of right where your bra goes. Okay. And it was red and angry. And she was like, I keep telling people about this and no one's doing anything. And I'm like, oh my God, she's a cancer patient. Does she need to be inpatient for antibiotics? Can we give her oral antibiotics? And I go talk to my attending and I'm like, okay, we really need to do something about this because this is causing her a lot of distress. And so we gave her oral antibiotics and we got her to radiation to have it radiated. She comes back, it's gone. Mm. And when I saw her again, she grabbed my hands and said, I really appreciate you because no one had listened to me like that before. And... She was one of my favorites. Miss Short was one of my favorites. And when she would come in for chemotherapy and for inpatient admission, I would always go see her. And one time I went to go see her and the nurse was still getting her all settled in and everything. And she said, I told them I had a black doctor. I kept telling them I had a black doctor in the myeloma clinic. And they kept saying, no, we just have black nurse practitioners. She's like, no, I have a black doctor. She said this in a more colorful way. But basically, she's heavy chested and she's short. <laughs> That's why she, we call her Miss Short. <laughs> yeah, we, just, we call her Miss Short. But that also told me I had worked in that clinic for six months and I hadn't really been seen. Mm. And I talked to everybody in that clinic. Right, of course. I mean, but her Miss Short, she was really special to me. She was very, very special to me. And trying to make sure that even though her cancer is what took her trying to make it the best experience possible and to limit suffering. I remember one of the last times I held her hand as she cried and I just played her music and she stopped crying. I played her gospel music and she stopped crying. Miss Short really sticks out with me. I had a patient recently, inflammatory breast cancer, not very old, who just really encouraged me. And told me, gave me further confirmation this is what I was supposed to do when I was once again questioning it. So these patients happen to come up in my life when I start to question. Yeah, they're little angels. They're God's angels. (laughs) So I'm just like, okay, Lord, I see. All right, I'll come back. They are. They are. Because it's always when you're having like your roughest, your most terrible day or you got an exam back or results back that you're not happy about or your staff's driving you nuts. And then you, you get... Or something's going on in your personal life, you know, like (laughs) there can be things going on at home that are impacting you. And then these patients come and they say, no, this is like, you've changed my life and I've never been listened to the way that you listen to me. And I really appreciate you. And that always makes us feel really good. 
What's it like being a Black physician in Texas, specifically where you're uh, practicing? So far, so good. (laughs) Good. Christus has been very welcoming because there's such a need. Mm. There's such a need. I'm the first woman in our town, female oncologist, and I'm African-American. So it's a twofer. (laughs) Bam, bam. (laughs) So So it's been really great. I've gotten really good feedback from my patients and from my staff. So far, we'll keep our fingers crossed as time goes on. Ask me in another year. We will. (laughs) Because just about what? Four months in. So four months in. Yeah. Still very fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Have your colleagues, even in residency or even in your fellowship, have they reacted to you in a positive way always? Or have you had challenges and struggles? I mean, you talked a little bit about not feeling seen in one of your clinics. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's something that a lot of people of color who are interested in medicine don't necessarily anticipate because they're so into the books. And so then when they go out and they start going through their rotations or going through their residency, then then they really understand the niche and the politics of it all. So I want you to kind of just talk a little bit about your experience. You don't even have to say where, when, how, but who. <laughs> you don't have to use any of those words, but just some of your experiences, good and bad. So we'll start with... I would just tell those who want to go into medicine that you have to remember, unfortunately, you have to be twice as good to get half as far. The rules are made for you. You cannot do what some of your Caucasian counterparts do. You cannot act in the way that some of your Caucasian counterparts act. Always have a paper trail. Mm -hmm. Keep emails. Document, document, document. Mm -hmm. So if and when something comes up, you have receipts. I would say, don't let anyone tell you who you are. Those are some of the lessons that I learned. I will also say that, yes, this is a calling, but it's also just a job. And you can't sacrifice yourself for this job because you are replaceable to them. So you have to really focus on self-preservation. Dr. Taylor is giving you guys some words. I hope you all have notepads out right now because that is the T <laughs> to the T. It can be so hard when this is all you've ever wanted. I kind of think of it as like practicing is like our Olympics, you know? We just had the Olympics pass. So I think it's a really good analogy. When we're in school, especially like Dr. Taylor has been for so long, when you get to practice and you get to practice the way you want and you're not being necessarily... You have your own panel of patients. That's all I'm going to say. And you're responsible for them. It is our dream, you know, to do the best we can for our patients and to not cut corners and advocate for them and be the things that we wanted when we were sick or when our loved ones were sick. And then when you get there, just like you said, Dr. Taylor, in an interview, everything is always so perfect. And I think something that I would stress to the students because it, it starts in medical, I think it starts in PA school, like or, or medical school or whenever you're starting school, that's when I saw the stark difference. I think undergraduate, there's, I went to such a diverse undergraduate school and it was so big that I feel like as long as you did the things you were asked to do, there was really no problems. But the smaller and smaller the class size or the smaller the residency or the smaller the fellowship, the more scrutiny I think that there is. And I think that Dr. Taylor is telling you guys, the real deal. You have to keep a paper trail. You have to make sure that you say things in a professional, 
polite way and that but you're also still getting your point across you know and don't ever delete anything <laughs> that's also what my what I've learned and that's in life in general but especially when you're working and you're in medicine I would like uh, to say though if you're not a good writer you need to find someone that writes professional emails very well to teach you how to be a keyboard gangster right <laughs> you know how to say per my last, last email. email yes <laughs> per my last email moving forward we should yeah as i have said in the past or i've attached a list of things that i have noticed or yeah i you know that's professional that's like learning the medicine is the medicine, but it's also like navigating that can be a little bit difficult. And so if you don't have someone, have someone proofread your emails, like someone who does do this very, very well. Like I used to send things to my mom. I, I still do send things to my mom to say like, how does this sound? Does this sound too angry <laughs> or, or to the point? Like, is there a way I can soften this up? But sometimes things have to be said because they just have to be said. But I definitely agree with you, Dr. Taylor. You have to to really be professional and, and learn how to be a, an internet gangster and a keyboard gangster at the same time. I still send stuff to my dad. And what I would tell him, kind of like you would tell your mom, I would tell him to reverse Luther it. So I was Luther and he was Obama. Yes, like, right. This is what I want to say. Please make it nice. Please make it nice. Make it <laughs> palatable. Thank you. Let's get into our topic because the reason it's, we're 36 minutes in and I'm always keeping a look on the time. And the great thing about podcasts is we can go a little bit over. It's not like the world's going to end, but I know how busy physicians and people are in medicine. So I try to just be really conscientious of the time. Let's talk about multiple myeloma. Your patient, Miss Short, had multiple myeloma. And so I think that's a great segue into this. Can you define it for us? I'm going to act like a patient this whole time. I'm going to act like I have no idea what it is. And I'm going to ask you some questions and just if you could talk me through the diagnosis and the nuances in a way that exactly how you would explain it to a patient, because that's usually who is listening right now. I do want to say before we get started, uh, multiple myoma is actually what, what actually Colin Powell passed away from. And he is also African-American and was a secretary of state. It was all over the news, like two or three months ago. And that's what really spearheaded my idea for this topic, because I know that it affects African-Americans more. So I wanted you to go ahead and take it away, Dr. Taylor. So I want to just start with a brief overview. So multiple myeloma is 2% of all cancers, and it's 1.5 times more common in men than women. The average age of diagnosis is somewhere between 65 and 70, but it is diagnosed younger in African-Americans. 5 to 10% of people are diagnosed under the age of 40. Unfortunately, myeloma is two times as common in African-Americans. And it's the number one blood cancer in African-Americans, beating out leukemias. And people wow. know a lot about leukemia. Yes, yes. And there are 35,000 new cases yearly. So then we need to just break it down very simply. You need to understand how your cells are made. So you know what happens when they go rogue. <laughs> When well, they go to the dark side. <laughs> they go to the dark side. So you have three types of cells in your bone marrow. The bone marrow is the bloody part on the inside of your bones. There are red blood cells, which are like Amazon delivery trucks. There are white cells, which are kind of like the Dura Milaje, protecting you from bacteria and viruses. Then there are platelets. They're the Olivia Popes of bleeding, so they stop the bleeding. <laughs> But there's also a special group of cells called plasma cells. These cells make antibodies and help fight infections. So multiple myeloma is what we call a plasma cell dyscrasia, meaning the plasma cells have gone rogue. 
Yes. <laughs> so when they go rogue, they start making bad proteins and antibodies. And these proteins are called monoclonal protein, meaning one type. This really decreases a person's ability to fight any infection that they get. And that's one of the possible presenting systems. But a lot of the symptoms are very nonspecific. Mm. Fatigue, anemia, back pain, recurrent infections. That could be a number of things. And especially in the African-American community, anemia, there are at least 10, 12 different causes that you probably have to go through first. But there are some other lab tests that we would look for that would start to raise a red flag. When you get your electrolytes looked at, your calcium, Mm. if it's above 11, red flag. If your kidney function, which is also called creatinine, is above two, which is bad, red flag. (laughs) If your hemoglobin, that's your red blood cell count, is less than 10 or two points less than your usual, red flag. If you start having some new back pain, hip pain, leg pain, we, I have questions. Yeah. So then we need to do imaging. If you're having bone pain, we're going to do imaging. So we're going to get an MRI. Usually we like a whole body MRI. A PET CT will do, which is a special type of CT scan. Or if we have to, just a regular CT, depending on where you are and what your areas capabilities are. Yeah, what the radiologist department can provide. Yeah, and do. So those can spot the bone lesions. The blood tests will tell you about the calcium, your kidney function, and the anemia. We can also run specialized blood tests that look for that protein in the blood. And we also do a urine test to look for that protein to see if it's coming out in the urine. Another thing that we do to confirm multiple myeloma is what we call a bone marrow biopsy. Now, your hip bone, think of your hip bone or your pelvic bones as an Oreo cookie. So what we do is we go through the first cookie to get to the cream. Mm. The cream is your bone marrow. And we suck some of the cream out. And then we go further to the other cookie to get a piece of that cookie. This enables our pathologist to be able to look at your blood and your bone marrow under the microscope because they're basically looking at the factory because this is a factory issue. So they're looking for a lot of, to see if there are a lot of plasma cells or what percent of plasma cells are in your marrow. I just got my results back on a patient, one of my inpatients now. I did a bone marrow on him last week. He had all four of the crab criteria. I said, Mm. I see feathers, I hear quacking. The bone marrow will show me that it's a duck. Right. And his came back with 80% plasma cells. Mm. Greater than 60% is definitely myeloma. So he came back with 80%. So that's how he used that information. Then we send that blood and bone marrow off for further genetic testing to learn if there are genetic issues that make it more high risk or lower risk or what treatments it may be more susceptible to. So how do we get to crab? Yes. Calcium. How do we get to crab? So the calcium is increased because the myeloma is damaging the bone and that calcium release from the bone is getting into the bloodstream. Okay, how do we get to the kidney dysfunction or the kidney issues? Those abnormal proteins that are released into the blood are then excreted through the kidneys and can cause damage. They're wrecking shop while they're going out. The anemia is because the plasma cells have started taking over the bone marrow. 
So the other baby cells are like, we don't have room to grow. So your red blood cells don't have any more room to grow and their activity is decreased Hmm. because they're being crowded out by the plasma cells. And then for the bone lesions, myeloma activates cells that break down the bone. My $100 word is osteoclast and the class is for breakdown. And they block those that build new cells and repair damage, which are $100 word, osteoblasts. So there are also levels to myeloma. Let's think of it about a stoplight, a green light, a yellow light, and a red light. So our green light, it's an off green because it's not the best, but it's the best of all three. It's called MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. I will not ask you to repeat it. No. Just say MGUS. <laughs> Just say MGUS. That's what we do. <laughs> and this is two times more likely in African-Americans than Caucasians. So more African-Americans have MGUS. So MGUS is like a pre-pre-cancer. So something's off, but not off enough for you to need treatment. We just watch it. So that abnormal protein that the myeloma cells are making is less than three grams in the blood. And when we look at your bone marrow under the microscope, those plasma cells are less than 10%. And you have no crab features. No symptoms. No, no (laughs) crab feet. You cannot have any crab because that means something else is going on. So the risk of going from MGUS to myeloma is one to 2% per year. And only 20% of patients convert to active myeloma when they have MGUS. How often, Dr. Taylor, would you say that a patient should go to see their primary or their hematologist or oncologist if they were diagnosed with the pre-pre-cancer? You like how, when would you like to monitor? How would, what would you like to do with your patients? Would you want their primary doing it or would you want to do it? I'm amenable to both. I think it depends more upon what the primary physician is comfortable with. We all have different comfort levels. Yeah. And I respect that. And I don't mind. I will watch them. And since the transformation is so low, I usually test about every six months. But I always tell my patients, any patient, no matter what the diagnosis, if at any point something new happens, questions, concerns, new pains, anything, do not pass go. Come back and see me. Right. And we'll go over things again. So yellow light is smoldering multiple myeloma. So it's MGUS, but with more abnormal plasma cells in the bone marrow. So instead of less than 10%, like MGUS, it's 10 to 60%. You can also have what we call smoldering myeloma if you have an abnormal urine protein. And what we do is we collect a 24-hour urine and see how much protein you put out during that 24-hour period. Or your abnormal serum protein is greater than three grams per deciliter. Once again, no crab. Now, with smoldering multiple myeloma, the risk of progression is 10% per year in the first five years, 3% per year in year six through 10, And 1% per year thereafter. So we watch them a lot more closely. Closely, And they've been doing trials about, do you go ahead and treat smoldering multiple myeloma? And I'm very interested to see the long-term data for that. And then we have the red light, multiple myeloma. Right. So that's when you have a monoclonal protein present. So that rogue plasma cell and at least one of the CRAB criteria are met. At that point, it doesn't really matter what the labs are, but if that one plus, if you have a monoclonal protein and one a C and R and A or a B, mm. you're myeloma. Another way to look at it is also myeloma defining events, which is more than 60% of plasma cells in the bone marrow, a lesion seen on MRI, 
when we're looking for those bone lesions. And we look at some of the light chains. I don't want to get too deep into that because that goes into the woods. Yes. <laughs> but we look at a light chain ratio. And if that's over 100, you're at the red light of multiple myeloma. So going into treatment options, there are IV and oral therapies. The research is coming out so quickly. What we were doing my first year of fellowship is not what we were doing at the end of my fellowship. I was like, oh, we're not doing Palm Dex anymore. Okay. All right. There's a new hot girl on the streets. So the research is coming out so quickly. And there's a lot of money behind this research, a lot of trials, a lot of good therapies. I don't know if people remember a couple of years ago when U.S. Representative Katie Porter was talking to the makers of Revlimid or lenalidomide and talking about how they inflated the price of the pills. It went viral. Revlimid is one of the main drugs that we use. And her last data was $763 a pill. Wow. That's $23,000 for 30 days. Insane. It's not cheap. It's mind blowing, yeah. mind blown. And that's the backbone of a lot of the regimens that we use. We use a lot of three drug regimens and they're doing research on is four better than three. We know three is better than two, but is four better than three. And the goal is to try to get you in remission. And they're even doing special testing to like a molecular level to see how low the myeloma is. And if they can get you into a deep remission, there's also options if you're eligible for a stem cell transplant. So what they do is they get you into a remission and then they give you some growth factors and then they collect your blood. I'll just call it magic. And then when it's time, they put that blood back into you. So basically then what we do for a stem cell transplant when you come to the hospital is we basically try to kill all of the bone marrow. We go scorched earth. Then we give you those cells back so they can go and repopulate the bone marrow with good, healthy cells and not the plasma cells or the myeloma cells that were causing all the problems in the beginning. I was going to ask you, what are some of the side effects of the treatment? And do you always decide to go forward with treatment depending on where a patient is in their diagnosis? Go ahead and, and answer those two questions. So some of the big things, there are risks of blood clots, but we monitor for that. Decreased counts. Some can cause cardiac issues. Some can cause neuropathy. So we try to watch those very closely. And in oncology, we have this special kind of rating system we call ECOG, which is someone's performance status of how are they doing? Can they do everything? Are they able to bathe, clothe, do their bills, et cetera? Or are they, they can't do, they can do light work, but not go to a job? Mm. Or are they confined to a bed more or less than 50% of the time? Or are they bed bound and they can't really do much? So in oncology, we really, really look at that because we don't want to do any harm. Right. And if a person is not fully well or well enough to take a three drug regimen, we can do a two drug regimen. Right. Because it's still something. Right. But we can tailor it to your needs. Right. As long as you don't feel like we're doing harm. And let's talk about the genetic portion of it, because I think that's something that genetics has been so highlighted these last couple, especially for oncology, for tailoring treatments for patients. Can you just go back and talk about a little bit about when you guys send their sample out to the genetics? team, what are some of the things that you guys can learn from that? Oh, this is going to be complicated. Um, 
So you have... Is it just about treatment? Like, are you just learning about, okay, so based off of what this is telling us, then you might be better suited for this type of therapy versus this therapy. It helps us stage them and give them, risk stratify them to see like, oh, this is a high risk. This one is can be very resistant. It kind of helps set expectations. Okay. And gives us more information about what we're working with genetically. But a lot of it is helping to stage and risk stratify so we know. And I know there's some medications they may use for specific inversions or translocations. They may work better with X drugs. So it just helps us further tailor your treatment. Okay. Why does this affect Black patients two times more than white patients? Do we not know the answer to that question? Does nobody know the answer to that question? Because that's that's totally fine. I don't necessarily know the answer to that question. But the interesting thing is, is when there's equal access to care, we do better. Okay. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Like when there's equal access, so the listeners can know what that means. So when I say equal access, I mean access to care. And care means availability of clinical trials, the drugs that they need to get. And some of these drugs are very expensive. So you have to do a lot of work to try to get free drug or price reduced drug. But the VA did a study in 2019 that showed, and all the VA patients are treated the same, that showed when everyone receives the same treatment, African-Americans have a superior survival to Caucasians in myeloma. So in patients under 65, the median overall survival time for Caucasians was 5.83 years, but for African-Americans, it was seven years. So that's over a whole year difference. Right. So when you make things equal, we can do well, but socioeconomic factors are some of the biggest barriers for Black patients and patients of color. Being able to get off work, the fact that some people, if they don't work, they don't eat. Family issues. Like someone else in their family is sick, so they're the primary caretaker for them. They can't travel. They don't have transportation. So there are multiple issues that block access to care. Another issue that I read about was that African-Americans are less likely to see benefits from the Affordable Care Act because they live in states that have not expanded Medicaid. And I wish people understood the implications of that of not expanding Medicaid because it really does, especially after you, especially if you are a person of color. So I wanted you to also talk about survival rates for Black patients. And we hit a little bit on reasons how we can do better. Is the inverse true? So the reason why we don't do better in not the clinical trials or when we are given the same treatment is because we don't have the same access to care or are we not given the same medications? Like how does that work? And what do you see in your patient population? I'd like to say all of the above, Alex. Okay. So multi or another medicine favorite, multifactorial. Okay. Yeah. So the time to therapy in Caucasian patients is 2.7 months, but in African-Americans it's 5.2 months. So it's not even three months. Rec- yeah. Not even recognition from like anyone that there's something. Not even starting on. therapy. No, yeah. Not starting therapy. Yeah. And Revlimid, which is kind of the big backbone of a lot of the therapies is used less in African-Americans. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> I would have to do more research to try okay. to figure that out. But then we talked about transplant is an option. Right. So then let's look at time to transplant. It's nine-tenths of a year in Caucasians, but 1.3 in African-Americans. 
And then even as people get older, they prematurely decrease the number of transplants they're willing to do in older African-Americans. The lines don't, they're not congruent between whites and African-Americans. So they stop transplanting at a a younger age, African-Americans. Another issue is a lot of what we base our treatments on are clinical trials. Unfortunately, we can't generalize a lot of clinical trials because the patient population does not reflect America. (laughs) Yes. Only 6% of patients in clinical trials are African-American. And I understand and know why that is. And I've had long discussions with patients personally to say, to first listen and say, hey, what are your concerns? Mm -hmm. What are your issues? I remember one patient and it wasn't for myeloma, but it was another, it was for colon cancer. And there was a clinical trial and she came with her nephew. And when she came, her blood pressure was like 202 over 90. Like her blood pressure was high. Stressed. (laughs) Yes. And I just sat with her and talked with her. And I was like, ma'am, what are your concerns? And they looked at me and said at the same time, Tuskegee. And for those listening, those who can go get the book Medical Apartheid, it's more than just Tuskegee. Yeah. A very long history. So I explained to her that we have to consent you. We can't do anything until we consent you. You can revoke that consent at any time. Anytime, yeah. At any time. And for that particular clinical trial, I was like, you're going to receive the standard of care either way, whether you do the clinical trial or not. But right. by doing the clinical trial, you're helping, African-American, yeah. you're helping the results to be able to be generalized to African-Americans. Right. And at the end of our discussion, her blood pressure was a lot lower. It went back to like 138 over 80. Good. Not hospital level. (laughs) Not hospital level. I was like, are you going to have to go to the ED, ma'am? 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 You should do something. And she consented to the trial. But people don't realize they have to take time with people, especially African-Americans. There is a mistrust of physicians. That's one of the reasons I became a physician is because I did not trust them. So I wanted to be on the inside. So I knew what was going on so that I could advocate for myself, my family, and my patients to know that somebody's watching you. I know what's going on. Or I may not know everything, but I can find somebody that I does. can. Yeah, and I can look it up, you know, up to date. Journal articles are not very hard. Once you learn how to read them, the information is just up to you to look for it because it's just so much information. Yeah, and I'm really happy that you talked about that. So how were you able to convince her to join a clinical trial? Was it just you saying like, we need the data and that data will also help us with treatments and also give us the information that we need for our patients, for the patients who are Black? That was the smaller part. What I like to do for my patients is empower them. I tell all of my patients, you are the captain of this ship. Mm -hmm. I cannot and will not make you do anything you don't want to do. I'm on the ship to help you make informed decisions. So letting her know she has all the power is what I think made her comfortable enough is that she said, I can stop this at any time and I'll still receive the standard of care the appropriate chemo. So giving, empowering my patient to know that you are in control. Yeah. And I think that's so important, especially when there is that history of a medical apartheid, like you said, you need to feel in control to feel like you can trust your team. It also probably helps that you were a black physician though. Yes. (laughs) 
You talked a little bit about that with Miss Short. I'm, little, I'm, I'm never going to forget her name. Can you talk a little bit about your, because you work in a primarily, I mean, you see a lot of black, brown people of color. And do you find that you can convince them or you can talk to them and level with them and empower them to make decisions about their medical care that maybe your colleagues cannot or have not been able to, or just can't connect with them in that way? I think it's helpful with like cultural traditions, the way we speak, thought processes, (laughs) vernacular, and just, I think this isn't specific to race, but really trying to empower my patients and say, you are in control. And I always told them, I said, I don't care what clinic you're in. I want you to understand the what and the why. If at any point I don't translate, I forget to translate a hundred dollar word. I want you to say, hey, I don't get that because I want you to understand. And I think that's what gets across more because I find that a lot of physicians don't take the time to really talk to people and explain things or explain them well. And people will just nod and say, yes, oh, I get it. And they don't. I don't ask my patients, do you have any questions? I ask them, what questions do you have? It's a good pro tip. So because there I, should be some, like, especially when you're going to meet you for the first time, there should be some, right? I was going to ask you a little bit about when should a patient, let, we were having this conversation about multiple myeloma, how can we prevent that time to diagnosis, t- to time to treatment, to time to stem cell transplantation? What can be done? How can patients advocate for themselves? And when should they go to the doctor? Like that's a really big thing. I think a lot of people, especially during COVID, have stopped going to their annual visits, stopped getting annual blood work. It drives me nuts when I have like a 23-year-old and I'm like, you've never done blood work. Like never, ever, ever. Like, you know, maybe because there's no problems, but sometimes if you don't look, you're never going to find something. So what is like the best advice you can give to someone who's concerned about multimeloma or has a family history? Or how can you just encourage your patients to just seek care? Like to just go to their annual appointments, not even to see you, but just to go to get their original screenings. I would say this for not only myeloma, but all cancers. It starts with primary care. It all starts with primary care. For my 18, 19, below 30s, you are not invincible. Mm. Your knees will get old. (laughs) And there are so many people in their 20s that are getting diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer. I would say don't ignore the signs. If there's Mm -hmm. something that's off, please go be seen. I think especially in the African-American community, we have to be willing to talk about our family history. You need to know your family history to see if there are patterns. So you're at higher risk for getting myeloma if one of your relatives had myeloma. If you're starting to see a lot of breast cancer, prostate cancer, GYN cancers, there may be a genetic issue going on. Mm. So that means you need to get tested. And sometimes you may need prophylactic surgeries to help prevent you from that. But it all starts for me with primary care. It's getting that primary care because they are the gatekeepers to everything else. You don't have to go every three months if you don't need it, but at least once a year, get everything checked out just to make sure because there's so many young people who are getting diagnosed with stage four cancers. And for people as well, don't ignore the signs. If something's wrong, please come in. Mm. Because I had a patient pass a couple weeks ago she had an inflammatory breast cancer. So that's basically where her breasts got really swollen. Mm. She had peau d'orange where her breasts look like. 
an orange, an orange peel. It was red. It was ugly. And by the Inflamed. time she finally came in, it was metastatic. And then she quickly became too sick where we couldn't treat her. So I'm seeing a lot, especially my Black women, please, you have to take care of yourself. You have to put yourself first. I know you want to take care of everybody else, but please, please, if you get nothing else from this, please go get checked out. Get your pap smears, get your breast screenings, get your colonoscopies. They've done wonders with the prep. Some of the prep is a pill now. I've never had a colonoscopy, (laughs) but I drove my parents to theirs. I've had one. (laughs) And the the hack is, if you really can't tolerate the prep, you can just do whole bottle mirrorlax. So there are ways you can go around, you can get, but it's very important that you do it, right? Dr. Taylor, you have to do the things. You Um, have to do the things. Can we talk a little bit about prevention before we let you go? Because I know we're we're at an hour and seven minutes and I know you want to go home because you had a long day at clinic and just relax. And we really appreciate you coming. Is there any way to prevent multiple myeloma? Like what are the things you can do that you have control over? Like knowing your family history, right? Is there any data on like, diet, nutrition, exposures to toxins. Is there anything that we know about multiple myeloma as far as like why it happens or is this all just genetic and it's just bad luck? Some exposures to different chemicals, Agent Orange, benzenes can lead to it. Obesity is something that we can try to work on ourselves that we can control. And sometimes bad, it's a series of unfortunate events. It's a series of unfortunate events. But just, I think, being diligent about your health care and knowing your health care is self-care. Yeah. And also just like, don't ignore things. <laughs> like, Please you don't. Know? Please don't. Like, Please don't. That drives me nuts. Like I really, it's not only how I make a living, but I actually really enjoy seeing patients. So call your doctor. Like, and if you don't have a doctor because you don't like your doctor, get a new one or you don't like your provider, get a new one. Because I think that there's just so many things that if you felt comfortable picking up the phone and making an appointment for something like back pain, like something so nonspecific like back pain, or how would you know if your calcium was high? Most people don't know like the things that can happen with their body. So if you're feeling like you're not yourself, you're tired, you're fatigued, all of a sudden you have no energy whatsoever, you can't do the things you used to do, go to the doctor. It could be as simple as like, a simple blood test. I know as we get further and further into the specialty, there's a bunch of things we have to do, but that primary care physician, like you said, the main person you need, or your primary care provider is the main person you need to be seeking care from if if there's something going on. Before you leave, do you have any other things you wanted to talk about? We really appreciate you coming. We really appreciate all the education. You guys might have to replay that back for the green, the yellow, and the red lights because it was a really great analogy, Dr. Taylor, and I want people to really take that in for the different categories, MGUS, multiple myeloma. We want you guys to really take that in. So take the time to really replay that portion of of the episode. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Dr. Taylor, about being a Black physician, being a Black patient? Is there anything else that you could impart on the young listeners who might be listening who are interested in hematology and oncology? If you're interested in hematology, oncology, and you want to go into medicine, you're going to have to ask to get on a rotation like that. That's not something that you see in your general rotations in medical school. We need more Black hematologist oncologists. We're only 2.3% of all oncologists. Hmm. The last figures I saw, there were about 500 in America. And I'm sure they're probably in four states. Dr. Taylor asked me how I found her. I'm like, I just had to Google Black oncologists and hematologists. 
You guys aren't hard to find. (laughs) So, but go ahead, Dr. Taylor. If you're interested in it, you might have to search it out. Build your village. Mm-hmm. build your village. Everybody needs a good village and your village isn't always blood and everybody in your village may not always stay. They may just come for a season or a reason, but build your village. And I would just say, please get your health screenings, no matter what age you are. If you do nothing else from this episode, go call your parents and get that family history because yeah. that is important for a lot of different things. I don't care if it's not cancer, heart disease, diabetes, thyroid you issues. You name it. Yeah. You name it. Rheumatologic issues like lupus. If mm-hmm. you start to see a pattern, then those are things that your primary care physician can help you focus on. Like, hey, I've got three generations of this. Yeah. Sometimes I see parents and they're like, we don't want to be that person, but his dad has diabetes and I have diabetes or his grandparents have diabetes. And I'm like, you're not being that person. That's just, that's the main thing that I need to know. And your kid is like a baby, you know, <laughs> like, so it, it matters from day one, you know, those genetic predispositions. So thank you, Dr. Taylor, so much for joining us. I'm going to try to get Dr. Taylor to come back on for an episode about sickle cell and thalassemias. I might have to send her something nice to do so, but that's fine. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for educating us. And thank you for everything you do for your patients every day as a Black physician, as a Black person in America, for even just showing up into those rooms. I know sometimes people bring their family, their entire family with them when they're going to these appointments. Those little kids are seeing you. And you know, if you can't see it, then you can't be it. So you're a source of inspiration for so many people you don't even know who don't tell you. And for everybody who's listening to this episode, remember always to be safe, be well, and be informed. And that is the best thing you can do to advocate for yourself and your loved ones. Have a great night. Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.